Jesus teaches us that we are absolutely a dependent people. In John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do lots of things, some things, what? Nothing. So there's a tension. What I want to present today really is there is a fundamental tension, whether you acknowledge it or not, there is a tension between our cultural program and programming, the way you are actually programmed by the world around us and the way Jesus has called us to live. Do you agree? There is a tension. And that's what I want to talk about. There's a problem, there's an answer, and there's a decision. There's a problem, an answer, and a decision this morning. The problem. So here's my personal testimony. When I came to Christ over 30 years ago, that morning, when I came and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, I cried and I cried, and I, I'll, do, I'll start again, and I cried. Probably, I don't know, it felt like three hours. It probably was three minutes or ten minutes or something, but I cried and cried. And, and uh, somebody said to me, you know, that's the joy of the Lord, and, you know, that's your understanding. That's because you're knowing forgiveness. And, and you know what I knew in my heart of hearts? It was not that, actually. It was shame. I had, for the first time in my life, acknowledged, I need a Savior. I am screwing this up. I had a baby on the way, my, our first, and I couldn't live up to my lowest of standards, and I needed a Savior. I acknowledged it, and everything in me said, no! That was the scream of the pride of my independence. But there is only one being in the universe truly independent, and that is God. Last week, the sermon intro video said there is only one judge, and guess what? You're not him. I'd just like to tag on to that. There's only one God only one. And friends, we're not Him. We're not Him. This may be obvious. This may be obvious. But we're, as we get through here to further into the problem, we'll see it, frankly, really isn't. Pride is when I am so big. Doesn't it sound like you're talking to a little child? So big. When I am so big in my own sight, I obscure my view of you and of God. I have placed myself upon his throne. That's pride. And I may not even realize it, but the fact is I've done it. Pride is at the root. And it began in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. Let's look at it. Where did it all begin? This pride of independence. Genesis 3.1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the, tree, any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. 
And the serpent says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Ah, the seed is planted. Satan says, you will be like God. And this was Satan's desire from the time immemorial. Look at Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. This is God speaking to Satan. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Listen to the heartbeat of Satan. I don't often recommend that. But listen to it. Satan says, I will make myself. What's he thinking? And see if any of these thoughts ever resonate in your own mind. God is not for me. He's not for me. However you want to say it. God is against me. God's ability or willingness to meet my needs is limited and self-serving. I don't know about you, but that's the way my mind runs sometimes. So I will make myself what? Like the Most High. I'm going to take over. He doesn't quite have this in hand. I will take control. I will get what I've decided I deserve. I will be the creator of my own life. I will be the judge, the only judge of my actions and all others as well. And I will define my own reality. And you're sitting here going, that is a, tr you're, this is a little over the top, Dan. This is just a little over the top. But we've been reading a great book, our men's group, come on Wednesday mornings at 6.15 or something or other. I haven't been able to go for a while, but we're on chapter five of this book, and we've been in the book about five years, I think. <laughs> but we're reading this book called Saving Truth by a man named Abdu Murray. Mr. Murray is a scholar in residence of Christian thought and apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And if I'm not mistaken, this university is also famous for being the alma mater of our sister Janelle. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Mr. Murray is making the point that we, in this book, that we live today in a post-truth culture, one that is not seeking truth at all, but rather one that is seeking ultimate personal autonomy, complete independence, complete independence. Autonomy is a word of Greek origin and a combination of the prefix autos, which means self, and a suffix noms, which means law. Autonomy means self-law, a law unto oneself, self-government, sovereignty of self. And again, if you think that's just a little over the top and not really a part of our culture that much, one of the most celebrated statements of this thinking was of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in a decision that he wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. 
complete autonomy. The journalist Jeffrey Rosen wrote in The Atlantic, what made Kennedy distinctive was his idealistic commitment to an America where civil agreement and disagreement was possible and where civic education could ensure an engaged citizenry reading, willing, ready, uh, ready, willing, and able to defend liberty. And he goes on to say, Mr. Murray says, and yet, what is the actual fruit that we see? Do we see a civilly engaged population? This, where does ultimate autonomy actually lead? It leads to what we're seeing today. And yet, what is the actual fruit we see? In our obsession with self-definition, we lose track of what it means to be human, leading to uncertainty and confusion, unhinging our ability to value the dignity of others. Friends, we have lost track of what it means to be human. When we say we shall be as gods, we shall be like the Most High. We shall define our own reality. We lose track of understanding and relating to each other as well as to God. And lest, okay, so maybe I've proven or shown you, maybe you're believing, yeah, okay, it's out there a bit. I want to bring it in here a little bit. And uh, if you left the tomatoes outside, that'd be good because I don't need you throwing them at me. These are suggestions to think about. Let's consider how you and I might manifest, at least at the edges of our lives, making ourselves like the Most High. What does being like God look like in my life? And see if any of this resonates. What you're going to see on the screen here is a statement, and then in parentheses, an attribute that you'll notice is a theological attribute of God. And so when we are saying this, there's a complementary attribute of God that we're actually appropriating when we say that. That's my suggestion. First one, I can handle it on my own. Omnipotence. I don't need any counsel. Omniscient. Who are you to speak into my life? Self-sufficiency. I deserve better than this. Worthy. Worthy art thou, O Lamb. There's only one worthy. Jesus said that. <clears throat> I will define my gender. Sovereignty. I will decide when it's okay to divorce. Sovereignty. I will decide when I die. Sovereignty. Now this is tough stuff, friends. And I get it. And there's no judgment here. I'm just saying... When we make proclamations that we have the right to be these things that God is, we're actually putting ourselves in that place. Be careful. I will decide who is allowed to be born or to live. Sovereignty. I will decide who my neighbor is. Oh. Sovereignty. I will condemn that homosexual, alcoholic, workaholic, heretic. Righteous. I'm righteous, and you're not. <laughs> oh, my doctrine is pure holiness. I have no need of you, God, especially your people. Self-sufficiency. Friends, make no mistake. Did any of that resonate? I know it's hard to, hard, hard to say. 
But let's not make a mistake. When we slip easily into these subtle or even blatant power plays with God, we're practicing something the Bible calls idolatry. I am making humanity, I'm, and me in particular, God. And that is idolatry. We've been reading, uh, Robin and I have been reading a Bible plan. We're in the middle of Jeremiah. and It seems like it's never going to end. And it's idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Friends, God hates it. Because you know why? It takes us right out of the place of blessing. It takes us right out of all of the potential and possibility in our lives. And God doesn't want that for you and I. It's not that he's jealous or he's afraid of losing his place at all. It's that we're losing out. No end of problems result from our habit of unconsciously buying into the lie that we are God. And isolation from help, strife within the church, broken relationships, destroyed testimony. And when I'm in this place, you know what I see in me? And I, and I fall into it. We all do. I think we all do. Anxiety, impatience, fear, doubt, drivenness, crankiness, defensiveness. Robin, am I ever there? <laughs> Amen, brother. Preach it. What a, bu- what a bummer. Okay, so end of the bad news. There's an answer. That's the problem. But there is an answer. I've longed to be free from this pride all my Christian life because I know it only separates me from God's blessing. And here's how Peter describes the answer. He says in 1 Peter 5, 5, in the same way you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Okay, submit, be humble. Dan, you're still talking about the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Submission, humility, dependence, this is hard stuff. It's hard to do. Ask any wife who takes Ephesians 5.22 seriously. This is hard. What does it say? For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's the New, New Testament. You can't even try to explain that away and say that's the Old Testament, brother. That's, you know, we're living under the New I'm sorry, you know, it's there. What are you going to do with it? It requires humility, dependence upon God in a very real and practical way. And why is it so hard? I would submit it's hard because of the pride of independence. I want to be the one who calls the tune. For me, the antidote for this is pride of independence is encounter with God. It's not automatic. I believe encountering God, truly encountering God, is something that we grow in. So let's spend some time right now, today, encountering God. Are you with me? You want to go there? Well, that was about 30% of you. Are you ready to go there and encounter God? All right, good. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's let's read. uh, This is a story a first-person account of the call of God on a man who was to become one of the greatest, if not the greatest prophet in Israel. The Lord Jesus preached his first recorded sermon that we have from this man's writings. I mean, pretty darn good, right? Pretty darn good. Let's read Isaiah's encounter story. Isaiah 6.1. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. 
He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Friends, as we, we're going to walk through this passage, and what we're going to do is together, believe it or not, we're going to have an encounter with God. If you're willing to go with me, we're going to have an encounter with the living God. And to me, when I get to that, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm preaching the last point right now, but when we get there, to me, this is the antidote. For me, being in the throne is to see Him in the throne. Okay, so go with me, please, please, because this is what I'm going to ask you to practice in your Christian life. So in this passage, we glimpse the very throne room of Almighty God, and it's revealed to us in language that carries us inward and upward to a thundering crescendo of glory. Does that sound cool? It's better than Harry Potter any day. Okay. Isaiah 6, 1a, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. In a very specific year of history, in the reign of King Uzziah, a man called Isaiah had something remarkable happen. He saw someone who is normally quite invisible, the Lord our God. The word Isaiah uses for the name of God is Adonai, or Master. Isaiah knew that this vision was of his Master. In relation to him, Isaiah was a willing slave, a willing slave. He was beginning to be brought. When he saw the Lord as the master, he was beginning to be brought into right relationship with God. Are you with me? Right position with God. And where was the master? Isaiah 6.1b, he was sitting on a lofty throne. The language and vision rises higher from master to not just any master, but one who was sitting on a royal throne. And in America, we're kind of unfamiliar with uh, royal protocol. But in monarchies, the royalty would sit upon a throne, typically a very ornate chair, indicating their rank as ruler. So here's one for you to see. This chair was elevated above the surroundings. Notice it's up on a pedestal. To highlight the eminence of the person sitting in it. And if there were multiple rulers and thrones, the highest throne was for the most eminent ruler. So there's the next one. So all of those on lesser thrones are less than the one on the highest throne straight ahead in the picture. And of course, this last one, we couldn't leave without this last picture. Every, who, who's familiar with that one? Yeah, there's a few. Okay. Isaiah sees his master sitting upon a high throne, a very high throne, indicating a very powerful full eminence. The master is a very eminent king. Verse 1c, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The language rise still higher. Again, in ancient times, the, the length of the train of the royal robe indicated the eminence of the king. Does anybody remember Princess Diana's wedding dress and the train that went all the way down the steps of uh, Westminster? I guess it was Westminster Cathedral. I found that picture all over, but nothing high res enough to get up here. So, um, but I just love that picture. But because you can't find one of a royal robe anywhere. 
But this royal robe, that royal robe flows all the way through the throne room and out the door. The greatness of this king shows that he is king above all kings. Now verse 2, attending him were mighty seraphim. The language rises still higher. The attendants of the king of all kings are glorious, angelic beings. These are the servants of our king. The servants of our king are majestic, angelic beings. And throughout Scripture, we find that before angels, men and women fall down to worship them. They become as dead. They're blinded by the brightness. Can you imagine meeting one of the seraphim? And these are just the attendants of our king. Just the attendants. In their own right, glorious beyond our imagination, and they're just the attendants of the king. Verse 2b, and each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Why did the seraphim cover their face and their feet with their wings? In Exodus 33 it says, but you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. Men cannot look upon the face of God without, what, incineration. God is great. The glorious attendants of the King of glory cover their faces with their wings in His presence because they cannot enter His glorious presence without being dazzled. You and me, we fall before angels. Angels must hide their eyes because they would be blinded in the presence of our king. In Exodus, in Exodus 3 and 5, Moses and Joshua instructed the, uh, are instructed to remove their shoes from their feet because the, they stand upon holy ground. So even these glorious creatures are, are hiding their feet, are hiding their feet. All of this, to me, just illustrates the surpassing glory and greatness of God our King. Now the language of the passage begins to reach a crescendo uh, as these glorious beings in the presence of the King, the High King, the Almighty and Glorious King, from the depths of the seraphim, standing in reverence, the glory of the King pulls adoration. Adoration out of these glorious beings. Isaiah 6.3 They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And listen, I just said holy. Glenn said I can't shout. Um, holy, holy. It wasn't like that. Did you hear the thunder this morning? It's all, that thunder shook my house. That and this, the call of, holy, of the seraphim, holy, 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 shook the temple of heaven to its foundation. How great is our God. <sighs> Consider, meditate, appreciate, absorb into your thinking who God is. He is the high and holy one who inhabits eternity. And he loves you. 
if we come to God seeking who He is, and if we start to get a sense for it, we can't escape reacting as Isaiah does. Verse 5, then I said, it's all over. I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. That's all you. I'm the first one with filthy lips and then I'm... (laughs) Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies, and yet still live. He doesn't say that. I do. I'm just like an amazement. I've seen him. Just like the day we were initially saved, just like the day of our new birth, we are humbled and cry out. Do you remember the day that you submitted your life to Jesus? That was a good day. (laughs) Were you filled with an awareness of your need? Were you convinced that in you that is in your flesh dwells no good thing? Were you certain that nothing you could do on your own could make things right with God? In that day, you were humble. In that day, I was dependent. I was dependent. So the answer is, friends, first, first, accept what God has done for you in Christ. Receive Him as your Savior. But, friends, there's a ton of programming out there that will immediately draw us back to be upon that throne. So second, once saved, no matter how much you learn, grow, mature, no matter how much you suffer or are blessed, no matter how much you sacrifice for God or for His people in service, no matter how exalted or low your position in the church, ministry, the world around us, every day, return to the simplicity and reality of that moment. That day when you knew the depth of your need beyond doubt. Live there. All right. How? How do I do that? Here's a recommendation. When I look upon the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, the thrice holy God, I am humbled, which is the only appropriate position for a man like me to live. That's, this is me, it's just a suggestion, but when I look at the King of Kings and when I exercise myself to look upon Him, I am brought into that proper place. And when we're in that position, what happens? What happens? When we know that we're a sin, I'm a sinful, I'm a sinful man. Now, we, I know the theology and I can, you know, but when we, if we're going to make sure we stay the heck off that throne... We have to come into reality. And the reality is, is my thinking will run and make me the king of kings in a heartbeat. Acknowledge, like Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 6. Then, so he, he acknowledged, I'm a sinful man. I have unclean lips. Then what happens when we do that? Here's the cool part. Isaiah 6, 6. Then one of the seraphim, flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. Verse 7, he touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. 
praise God. What His holiness demands of you and me, His grace has provided in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. The coal from the altar in heaven brought down to sinful man to touch him is a beautiful picture. This is wonderful literature. A beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ come from his throne in heaven to die on a cross, to shed his blood, to apply that blood to the sin in my life, to atone for all of my sin. How holy is God that only the blood of his son could atone for my sin. And it has. Amen? So a decision. A decision. Given this vision of God, how can we even for a moment claim autonomy in anything? We we can't. It's not possible. A key to getting free of the lure of being like God, which is satanic and worldly, is to grow in being like Christ, which is God's purpose for us. Philippians 2.5, listen to this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God has elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Jesus, the divine man, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Have this attitude in you, which is yours. It's yours in Christ. This morning, there's a decision for you to make. What decision is that? I will not listen to the voice of the serpent who says, be independent. I will not listen. I will not be like God. That is not my desire, not my drive. I will be like Christ. And what does that look like? I went through a litany of 12, I think it was, suggested items of what it means like being like the Most High looks like. And here, I'm just going to go through two and Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to go through the first two, and there's going to be an instead of this, there's a biblical, Christ-centered answer to that approach. The first, I can handle it on my own. That's omnipotence. But instead of that, I can do all things through Christ, through Christ. I don't need any counsel, omniscience. I lack wisdom. I will ask God, and I will ask my brothers. And I've got the rest of the ten right here if you want to talk about it. Give me some grief or get something cool. Either way, come talk to me and we'll get through it. So this morning we've talked about the problem of pride, manifest by a drive for independence. We've seen how we express that in a myriad of ways in our everyday life. And last week, we were reminded that if we make ourselves the judge, we take God's rightful place. Let's just call that what it is, okay? It's sin. When we behave like that, we are sinning against God, against our brothers and sisters, against our wives, our children. This morning, I'd like to call us to a decision, to examine our hearts, find if we have in overt or subtle ways been buying into this world's culture of independence. 
living as if we have no God, or worse still, I'm Him. Okay? I'm Him. I have, I believe we all have, it permeates our culture. So then what? Name the sin. First, name the sin. Setting yourself up as God is idolatry. We don't like to put that behind our name, like PhD or, you know, but, you know, sometimes it helps us to just kind of like, hello, I'm being an idolater right now. That's called confession. Second, remember Isaiah's encounter story. Look upon your loving king in all his splendor and glory and say with me and him, then I said, it's all over, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man, I have filthy lips, and I, have, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Friends, this is not some sort of, this is not intended to be some sort of a big, you know, like uh, uh, a big downer or a big um, uh, self-esteem killer or any of that. This is just being honest. This is just being honest. This is humbling yourself. And third, go with me with Isaiah 6, 6, and 7. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies, and He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, we don't want to stay in that place we want, to, we want to acknowledge our sin, and we want to humble ourselves before our mighty God, but we've got to acknowledge, we go on from there to acknowledge Christ has made all the difference and receive the forgiveness, receive the forgiveness and the blood-bought forgiveness that Jesus has gotten for us, that we are actually free from living like that. And my friends, I promise you the result will be peace that passes all understanding. Amen? All right. I'm done, brother. Can you, can you land this plane somehow? <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Wow. I don't know about you, but I feel challenged. I feel like uh, God's messing with us, the whole idea of there is a God, and we are not Him. And...